Now, tonight, our choir and orchestra is kicking off their Wednesday night. Do not feel left out because they're having brisket and they're having peach cobbler. Uh, well, that's exactly right. I was going to say, uh, you're not getting any. So, Michael Slaughter made nine peach cobblers. And by the way, if you're on social media, Facebook or uh, Instagram or whatever, but if you're on Facebook for sure, you need to follow Michael Slaughter. It, it's, it's very comical to follow that guy. And uh, so he, he, he gives you a blow-by-blow description pretty much of his entire life on Facebook. And it is, it is a lot of fun to, to watch Michael. So I know our choir's kicking off tonight. And so uh, we're recording, we will be recording these tonight. And is that correct? It's always good to check with your sound guy if he's shaking his head. And uh, I know Brondon's going to get us started, and then Brondon's got to get over to be with the choir tonight. So our children are kicking off tonight, our RASGAs, uh, students, there's just a lot, a lot going on. It's a busy time of the year. Committee meetings, meeting, finance committee's meeting as we prepare uh, the annual church budget, which will uh, be presented to the church next month. So they're working on what that budget will look like, and there's just a lot, there's just a lot going on. Uh, this last week on Sunday, we had our new, uh, new guest lunch called Lunch with the Pastors, and uh, we give people at that lunch a chance to make decisions, like to join the church, or we have a chance to sit down with people and get to know them and share the gospel with them, and we had four professions of faith and people for baptism, and then a total of eight who committed to membership to want to join Hunter's Glen this last Sunday. So uh, you don't always see that sometimes in church, but those things are happening, whether they're happening in front of church or they're happening at our Next Steps area. People, God is, is doing a great, great thing here um, at Hunter's Glen. We're excited about that, excited about what he's, about what he's doing. Uh, on September the 8th, which is a Sunday coming up, uh, not this next week, but the following week. So it's two weeks from this coming Sunday. We're going to be having uh, a big baptism Sunday, and we're going to be baptizing a number of people in both worship services. So um, if you know of somebody that's been waiting baptism or contemplating baptism, we would just encourage you to encourage them to look at September the 8th for that baptism. Uh, we'll be having cards in the worship uh, guides this Sunday. And the next Sunday, uh, so actually I think it's, yeah, it's two sun, three Sundays away. The Sunday after this Sunday, we have two more. But the next two Sundays, we'll be having cards in the worship guides. And you can uh, let us know you're interested or know somebody who's uh, contemplating baptism. And we'll follow up with them. Obviously want to sit down with them and talk with them about baptism. And then if they are ready, we will baptize on Sunday the eighth, uh, them. So there's going to be it's going to be a lot of a lot of good things going on in, in the in the days to come. Um, I want to just draw your attention to the little handout that's on your table. There are some prayer requests on the back of that handout, uh, just to keep you apprised of the latest as of that we know of today of of prayer requests. Um, and then on the front. Uh, or however you look at it, the back or the front, there are a couple of just uh, highlights of announcements. The two that I want to draw your attention to would be at the top. The women's ministry kicks off next week, 
and uh, the 25th, which is, uh, is that next Monday, Tuesday, Sunday, 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 this coming Sunday, uh, they'll be having a lunch right after worship, and then the 26th, which is Monday, next Monday, we'll be having uh, some training with our Gideon ministry about a prayer walk and how we will begin to walk our neighborhoods and to pray for our neighbors and to uh, ask God's intervention on their behalf. Before I go any further, is it me or is it hot in here? Praise the Lord. Okay, it's not just me. I'm grateful that I'm not the only one that's about to die. But anyway, uh, we're going to dive in after I pray, and then uh, I'll explain a little bit about what we're going to be doing on these Wednesday nights. Father, thank you for your presence with us tonight. As always, when we come, every one of us walks into this room in a different state of our life. Um, Lord, we know some of us are experiencing times of great blessing and joy, and yet even in these, uh, uh, around these tables, there are others who are experiencing really difficult times in their life. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would place your hand upon those in the room tonight who desperately need a touch from heaven and to know that you care and that you love them. And Lord, I pray that you would make all of us aware uh, around this uh, place of people and not just to see people and to exchange uh, just greetings with them, but to get to know one another so that we might get to know the burdens that we carry and that we experience. So Lord, I pray uh, tonight that you might just be God as you are, but especially in the request that we have around the tables tonight and those that are, 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 are listed on our prayer sheet and even those that didn't make that sheet but are upon all of our hearts tonight. Pray for your intervention in, in those people's uh, lives and the situations that are represented by them. Lord, we also ask you to help us in our study, open our eyes and our hearts and our ears to understand what you might say to us tonight. Uh, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, tonight we're going to begin a series of Wednesday night messages called Questions That Non-Believers Ask. We could also call this series Questions That Every Christian Should Be Able to Answer. So there are questions that non-believers are asking, and there are also questions that Christians, you and I, need to know how to answer. Hopefully when you came in tonight, you received a number of items that are on the tables over to the side. If you have not received those, I hope that you will feel free to get up and get them or send a representative over to get them. One of the things I want to do over the next couple of weeks is to give you a handout or give you some handouts to go along with the presentations that I'm going to be sharing. Uh, we're not going to cover everything in these handouts, but I wanted to give you some information to be able to arm you with some insights, some biblical uh, truth that will kind of be helpful to you. The goal of our time on Wednesday nights is not to be confusing. It's not to uh, raise maybe more questions than we can provide answers, but it is to give you some solid biblical teaching and insights into some really, really very uh, uh, difficult issues 
that all of us deal with in, in the world in which we live. Now, tonight, you can see, you came, you, as promised, we're going to talk about why does God allow evil to exist? Uh, we'll get into that in just a moment. But to keep you kind of the carrot dangling before you, uh, in the coming weeks, we're going to talk about subjects like, can I trust the Bible? You know, it used to be when you had a conversation with a lost person, person that wasn't involved in church, that you could begin by talking about their their, their faith or their lack of faith by pointing them to the Bible. But you know that today in our world, and increasingly so, very few people accept at the beginning the authority of, of the scriptures. And so to begin a conversation by asserting the authority of a book that they don't even understand or even acknowledge that it has authority puts you in a difficult spot. So we're going to talk uh, in the coming weeks, and hopefully we'll get to it next week. And the reason I say I hope that we'll get to it next week is because we'll see how much we get through this week. Uh, but we're going to talk in coming weeks uh, about can I trust the Bible? And how can you help a person who is a skeptic of the Scripture to understand what you have come to understand about the Scripture? So I want to give you some tools. We've uh, looked at some of these things in the past but we're going to take some time to really look at them very carefully uh, going forward. And then we're going to talk about the subject of evolution. How did we get here? Uh, is there any value, any substance to uh, a, a worldview that sees creation outside of the creation story or the creation narrative that we find in the Bible? Is there any value, any merit? to the subject of evolution. And then and coming down the road, we're going to talk about the issue of life. Does life begin at, at conception? And so we're going to begin to raise questions that non-believers are talking about. But here's the caveat that I believe many believers are talking about. And they would love to know the answers to those questions. So over the next weeks and throughout the fall, we're going to try to hit, and we're not going to go through it rushing through each one. We're going to take our time, ask questions, try to answer questions, and have some interaction together. But the goal will be to give you some solid understanding that these aren't questions that you, you need to ignore or you need to punt, you know, or you need to say, go ask my pastor, or, 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 or these are mysteries of God that nobody knows, right? That's always the one that you can get them off your back. You just say, these things are left to God. But, but what about a, a true uh, skeptic who is asking honest questions and is looking for honest answers and honest insight? So on the first handout that you have, there's a, a series of questions at the top of the page. Do you know what you believe, and do you know why you believe what you believe? So I want to just start there, and I'm going to go through this very quickly. You have it all before you, so I can do it fairly quickly. But I want to give you just some biblical foundation as to why it is important that we're taking the time to do what we're doing. Somebody said to me uh, this week, they said, Pastor, I wish that you would do this on Sunday morning, uh, because a lot of people that are in church on Sunday morning, are at that place in their life where they're trying to understand uh, some of these very, very deep things, and they're, they're, they're curious uh, about what the Bible might say or what God might say or how Christians might respond to them. So 
Uh, maybe at some point we need to dive into some of these issues. But here's the reason that we're going to try to answer these questions. Notice what the uh, several of the passages in Scripture that are listed. And first with what the book of Proverbs tw- uh, chapter 23, verse 7 says, For as he thinks in his heart, so is he. Really, it's, it's, it's what you think and, and what you know and what you believe and where your, your, your presuppositions are, that what, what, what your foundational beliefs are, that really plays itself out in, in everything that you are and everything that you do, right? What you believe, your values, your actions, your decisions all flow out of those beliefs, So what you think in your heart or what you believe in your heart will play itself out in the way that you live your life. Paul told Timothy, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care. Turn away from godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge. In other words, Paul is telling Timothy, Timothy, you need to focus on things that matter. You need to have substance to your beliefs. You need to understand why you believe what you believe. Guard what's been entrusted to you. Don't chase around myths or chase around things that provide no value or no substance, but you guard what's been entrusted to you. He says to Timothy again in 2 Timothy, do your best to present yourself as one approved uh, to God, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, who correctly handles the word of truth or rightly divides the word of truth. Peter says, therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep Sober in spirit, fix your hope on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Remember, he's talking here about the, the mind. Paul told the Corinthians, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God. For the pulling down of strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God bringing every thought into captivity to obedience to Christ. Well, you can't bring your thoughts into captivity uh, to obedience to Christ if you're not able to understand why you believe what you believe. Peter says, always be prepared to give an answer. There's the word apologia. Uh, It's the word that we get our word apology. Uh, Apologetics isn't apologizing for your faith. It's defending your faith. It's the ability to to give reasonable and logical answers to questions. And he says, to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. And then Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, 37, Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and what? With all your mind. So we want to begin to develop our minds and sharpen our minds so that we can answer questions like, why is there evil in the world? In Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis, uh, has the following quote, and it's listed on the, the page. God is no fonder of intellectual slackers than any other slackers. If you are thinking of becoming a Christian, I warn you, you are embarking on something which is going to take the whole of you, brains and all. But fortunately, it works the other way around. Anyone who is honestly trying to be a Christian will soon find his intelligence being sharpened. One of the reasons why it needs no special education to be a Christian is that Christianity is an education itself. Isn't that good? It really is. And the more that you dig into the issues and the more you begin to wrestle with them, the more they begin to sharpen your understanding and your belief in God. One note, and we'll see this as we get through the the presentation tonight, but C.S. Lewis 
took this subject of evil in the world as he wrestled with the, the presence of evil and the existence of God, and it rather than leading what it does for many away from the faith, it actually led C.S. Lewis to the faith. And so his grappling with the issue of God and evil actually drove him to God. And so C.S. Lewis is speaking out of experience. You'll notice the bottom. Christians living under the lordship of Christ must know both what they believe and why they believe it. It has never been more important. And then just very quickly, there is a, another page, and it says, what is a worldview? And this is exactly what we're gearing toward. This is exactly where we're headed. We want to develop a worldview. And a worldview is a comprehensive view of life through which we think, understand, and judge, which determines our approach to life and meaning. Let me give you an easier way to understand worldview. You know what a worldview is? A worldview are, are, it will be the lenses through which you view and interpret the world around you. So it's how you view the world is what we call your worldview. And everybody has a worldview. Every one of you in this room has a worldview. And your worldview determines how you think, how you act, what you do, how you respond, and ultimately how you measure and interpret life. And so whether your worldview is the Christian worldview or whether your worldview is an atheist worldview or whether your worldview is a secular worldview, it's all going to determine how you live your life. My uh, professor in seminary who I had many classes with in worldview, Russ Bush, calls the worldview a basic set of assumptions that gives meaning to one's thoughts. It is a set of assumptions that someone has about the way things are, about what things are, and about why things are. So that's what a worldview does. Um, it's a set of presuppositions or assumptions. And I, I won't read some of the other quotes, but I just put them on for you. There, there is really a fundamental question that is at the heart of a worldview, and it is, is there anything I would be willing to die for? So your worldview, your presuppositions, the ground rules that make up your whole frame of thinking would ultimately be that important to you that you'd be willing to die for it because it shapes everything about your life. Does that make sense? So, so this is very important. We have to understand why we believe, what we believe, what, what are the foundational principles of our life. Um, it gives meaning. You'll see five functions of a worldview. It gives meaning to your life. It helps you define the good life. Uh, what you know, uh, your worldview is is going to help you to make sense out of life in such a way that life is worth living. Uh, it's going to give explanations to seemingly irrational events that occur in life. Uh, it'll determine your values, establish what you think is important and what matters. Uh, it'll guide your actions. It'll assign meaning, meanings and priorities to those actions. Everyone has a worldview. Um, it is often shaped by where you were born and where you were raised and by the influences in your life, but it is not unchangeable. It can be adjusted, altered, or radically overturned. And the example is Christian conversion. You know, when, when God saves somebody and transforms them from the inside out, uh, you find people that had one worldview and that worldview is radically changed. Think about the Apostle Paul. Remember, Apostle Paul said, I was, a, I was a, a, the chiefest of all sinners. Uh, I, I was a blasphemer. I was a murderer. 
Uh, I was zealous for the law, but then he uses that great word. But when Christ saved me, he transformed me and turned me into something I never thought that I could be. And his worldview changed. And when his worldview changed, guess what happened? Missionary journeys and, and his passions and his whole life and his whole um, outlook on life began to change. That was because God changed not just his heart, but his mind and his thinking and his framework about how he interpreted life and how he went about his life. I was visiting with somebody from our church this week and talking about a situation that they're in, in a relationship, and it's a Christian versus a non-Christian. So you have a Christian and you have a non-Christian in, in a relationship. And, and my, my uh, uh, encouragement was, listen, you're, you're, you're operating in two different world views. And as a Christian, you cannot assume that the other person is seeing things and interpreting things the way that you are. And that'll get you frustrated if you think they ought to see things and interpret things the way that you see things and interpret things. They're not looking at it through the same lenses. They're not viewing it through the same presuppositions or through the same truths. And so don't let that frustrate you. And a lot of times, you know, as Christians, we sit around in church and we talk about all the lost people. How could lost people do what they do? How could they act the way they do? You've heard me say this before, but how do you want lost people to act? They're simply operating out of their world view and their set of assumptions that give meaning and direction and value to their life. And they obviously believe that that worldview is going to help them to realize the good life. Because if they didn't, they wouldn't do it. Nobody's going to adopt a worldview that's going to make their life miserable. We don't do that. We don't say, I'm going to try to find the worldview that's going to make me the most miserable person in the entire planet. No, we look for a worldview to make sense out of life, to give meaning to life, to give purpose to life. So again, these questions that we're going to be talking about are all very important for us as we deal with and as we wrestle with the subject of a worldview. And so tonight, we're going to start by talking about why does God allow evil in the world, okay? And I just want to walk you through, um, and, and you have a handout that much of this is, is, is given to you, um, and you can thank me later for doing that, uh, because some of you said in the past, you know, Pastor, you go so quickly, and I can't write it all down. And so rather than have those things said to me, I figured I would give it to you and, and avoid that. So I want to try to ask, ask and answer the question tonight, how do we explain why bad things happen in our world? And I want to give you a very well-known syllogism, and a syllogism is an argument that has been around for millennia. So let's look at it. Here it is. Here's the way the argument goes. Number one, God is all loving, so he is opposed to evil. So God is all loving. He is a, uh, a, a benevolent God. He is a, a God of love. If you understand anything about the Bible, you understand that the Bible paints God as a picture of love and of a personality, of making himself known, uh, of, of striving to, to, to make himself known, to relate to people. Uh, so God is all loving. Therefore, he is opposed to evil. 
Secondly, God is all-powerful. We use the big theological word omnipotent, so he can prevent evil, okay? So we say that God is all-loving and he's opposed to evil. God is all-powerful. He can prevent evil, but there's a dilemma, and that dilemma is there is pain and suffering in the world. And not only that, among people, but there are disasters, there's disease, and there's death. If you look at the world that you and I live in, we live in a broken world, and all the king's horses and all the king's men cannot put it all back together again, seemingly. We live in a broken world. We live in a broken church. We have broken people. There are broken people in this room. I've said before to you that if we were all honest one day and would just tell everybody what's really on our hearts, first of all, we would feel better to know that we're not the only dysfunctional people in the entire church. But then secondly, I think we would all break out and cry to realize how messed up we all really are. But that's the reality. And the dirty secret in church is don't ever let them see you sweat. Don't ever tell anybody that you're broken because everybody has to act like they're all put together. And, you, and if you confess that you're broken, you're the only broken person, then you feel out of place and everybody's talking about you. And all that is just a lie that the enemy wants to, uh, to, to place on, on, on the church. And so, uh, but we do live in a broken world. So there's, do you see the tension now that exists? If God is loving, and I think we would agree that he is, he would be opposed to evil. Uh, everything God created is what? Good. When God created the heavens and the earth, he said it is good. God is a good God, and there is no evil in him. The Bible says God is light, and there is no darkness in him. The Bible says that God and light and darkness are incompatible, right? So he is a good God. Clearly, the Bible teaches that. And we know that he's a powerful God. There is nothing that God cannot do. And let me just give you the clarification that is logically consistent, okay? So God cannot create a square circle, okay? God cannot create a stone so big that he can't lift it. Those are contradictory statements. God is not contradictory, right? So, and by the way, has it ever occurred to you that nothing has ever occurred to God? So think about that later. Anyway... But there is, there is the reality that God is omnipotent. There is nothing too difficult to be. Ah, Lord God, thou hast made the heaven and the earth by thy great power. Nothing is too difficult for you. And so we know that God can do whatever he chooses to do, whenever he chooses to do it, with whatever tools he chooses to use, because they're all his. But here's the dilemma. Again, there's pain and suffering in the world. And so... God must not exist. The syllogism must not be accurate. Because you see, if God is loving, then he wouldn't allow evil to occur. If he is all-powerful and evil did occur, he could stop it from occurring. But there's evil and suffering, therefore God must not only not be loving and he must not be powerful. He probably does not exist. And this is created a lot of conversation through the centuries. Let me just give you a little homework assignment. Google God and evil and spend all the time you want chasing all those websites down. You will find numerous, thousands, thousands upon thousands of articles and, and conversations and, and, and debates and, 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 and questions about this subject. Now listen, here's what I want you to know. This is a fair question question to ask. 
This is not something that we as Christians should say, well, it's just a mystery of God. And we just, you know, some things are left only to God. You know, we, we have to take the time to try to grapple with it and understand it. And also to help people who might not be where we are to understand that we can, uh, we, we can, we can deal with this subject in, in, in a number of ways. So let me give you what David Hume said. This is philosopher David Hume. If you had any classes in philosophy in college, uh, bless your heart if you survived them. Uh, but David Hume, in his dialogues concerning natural religion, states the argument this way. It's a very famous quote. Is he God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he is impotent. Is he able but not willing? Then he is malevolent. Is he both able and willing? Whence then is evil? It's just another way of saying, why is there evil in the world? So that's the argument. Have you ever heard anybody say that to you? If you haven't, they will. And how you deal with that argument is going to lead you to one of two places. And it leads some people, because they can't get through this argument, it leads them down a pathway where they don't want to have anything to do with God. And it leads others who inquire and wrestle with it and grapple with it, it leads them to a relationship with God. C.S. Lewis is an example of that. But let me give you a, a little a picture here of how some people try to deal with this uh, question of evil in the world. This, this is uh, from a, a British program.
So you see the perspective there. Um, obviously, this is actor and atheist Stephen Fry, who, you know, is arguing from the question or arguing the question of theodicy. And again, the word theodicy, theos meaning God and DK meaning uh, righteous or justice. How is there justice in the world uh, when there's evil in the presence of a God who is supposedly uh, a benevolent, omnipotent God in the world? So the, the question of why do bad things happen in our world is a real question that people are asking. And, it, you know, honestly, it's a, it's a fair question. Now, before we go any further, let me tell you what usually happens. When bad things happen, things that are inexplainable or inexplicable from a human perspective, a lot of well-meaning Christians say some really dumb things at the wrong time. I was telling somebody that this week. I was visiting with them about something they're walking through uh, in our church, and I said, you know, um, sometimes pastors, in their effort to want to help and their effort to want to do something to be spiritual, say the dumbest things at the wrong times. And this person said, yes, you do. Anyway, <laughs> I, so the worst thing that you can do when a person is walking through a difficult time, whether it's a, a, a cancer diagnosis or a, a, na a natural disaster or some tragedy that befalls them, is to come to them right at the beginning and say to them, well, there's a greater purpose than all of this. Because humanly speaking, when you're walking through some dark times, you're struggling to figure out, why did this happen? What, what, is, there, is there any sense to this? Is there any meaning to this? By the way, there's nothing wrong with asking those questions. There's nothing wrong with that. You think God doesn't know that we're thinking those things and, and that we can't express those things to him? He understands and knows. So a lot of times that our first response is to try to, to, to put a Band-Aid on something that is a much more fundamental question. I'm, I'm not, I don't agree, obviously, with Stephen Fry, and I think he's misled in, in a number of ways, and we'll see that in just a few minutes. But what I want you to know is he's voicing the question that a lot of people have. How can there be a good God and evil in the world, and how do those two somehow work together? So even Christians struggle with this, right? Uh, not in this room. You guys are all super spiritual people. But, but even Christians struggle with this. Even Christians do. And if you're here tonight and you're like, I know pastor's going to give us the ultimate and definitive answer, you're going to walk away disappointed because this is a question for thousands of years that the church and Christians have wrestled with. And uh, there are some answers and there's some insight and the Bible doesn't ignore it and the Bible gives us truth that it will help us. But at the same time, in your human mind and your finite understanding, you're trying to understand uh, divine things that our minds can never get uh, their, their uh, uh, never understand. We can never get our arms around it. So Christians would ask this, why does God permit human evil to spread? Um, I'll, give you a, I'll give you a way that somebody put it. Why doesn't God allow the gun to misfire of the person that walks in to a mall with a rifle with intent on harming innocent people? I mean, God could do that. He could jam the gun. Why doesn't he do that? Why doesn't the evil 
person who is on their way to do horrendous harm to people, why doesn't that person get in a wreck so they never arrive at their destination? I mean, why doesn't God put it into the heart of a policeman as he's driving down the road? Hey, you need to go and check on that school over there right before something bad happens at that school. Why why doesn't God do that? And I know there are a lot of us that say, God, if you had only uh, stepped in, if you had only done this at, at this time, then then, then things wouldn't have happened. So why didn't you? Christians wrestle with it. Trust me, some in this room, you, you guys have asked that question. Uh, why did he knowingly create a world he knew would be broken? Do you think God woke up one day and he looked at the creation that he called good and he saw what a mess it was and he went, I never saw that coming. I mean, that's one thing you can take to the bank that the Bible teaches about God. God never wakes up and says, I never considered that. I, I never thought of that. I never saw that. Oh, my goodness, what do I do? And we'll see there's some views that want to put God into that category because they want to take God off the hook when it comes to evil, and they try to get God off the hook, and so they limit God and who he is, and we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that. So, but why did he knowingly create a world in which he knew would be broken? And then lastly, why did he knowingly create people he knew would turn against him and bring destruction upon themselves and the world? God knew. He, 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 he understands from beginning to end. Remember this about, about eternity. You see, you and I, when we look at eternity, uh, we look at eternity, <coughs> excuse me, based on a point in eternity. So it's when we were born and we begin to understand and we see what our place is and you know, we define our life by the dash. You've heard that. We define the dash from the birth to the death and we're in the dash. And that's how we view our lives. And we try to look to eternity and we can only see so far, but God has put eternity in our hearts so we know that there is eternity, but we don't really kind of understand, you know, what's on the other side. We don't really even know what happened before we got here. All we know is the, the short time period where we are. But when God looks at eternity, he sees beginning from end. He sees it all. And really, God always existed. There's never a time when God didn't exist. He had no beginning. He has no end. He's eternal. And so when he looks at time the way uh, we try to look at time, God sees it all. So when God sees things, he sees the entire picture. And you and I don't have the luxury of seeing that. So God sees the past. He sees the present. He sees the future. But he doesn't just see it in segments. He sees it in totality. And that's a very, very important understanding about God. Now note, the problem of evil is a problem for everyone. If God exists, we have to explain why evil is here. But if God does not exist, we have to explain why we find evil objectionable. You get that? The Christian can struggle with evil. The skeptic must also struggle with good. The Christian can weep over crooked lines, but the skeptic must explain what makes them crooked. This was C.S. Lewis. So you understand that. If a person says, how could this tragedy happen? Just as Stephen Fry was saying, well, for him to say that there is injustice in disease or whatever, he has to have some understanding that there's justice. So if you're going to say that there is injustice in the world, then you have to understand that there's also justice that gives you a comparative Uh, understanding of those two so just as a skeptic might say you you Christians are 
uh, at a loss to explain evil, you, you know, you, you and God and how those work together, we would turn that back around and we would say, well, you're at a loss to explain how you know there's right or wrong in the first place. How do you know it was a senseless tragedy? How do you even know what tragedies are, right? If we're just the victims of a universe that's closed and it's just kind of winding down and we're just along for the ride, you know, why would anybody be upset at anything that happened to them? We have no, no, no say in the matter. There's no control over it all. We would just say it's just something, you know, that happens uh, in life. So again, we have to try to answer the question both of why is there evil, but we also try to have to answer the question of why um, do we have an understanding of evil in the first place. And why do we? Y'all know the answer to this. How do we know that there's, there's right and wrong? How do we know there's a standard? Well, we were created in the image of God. God has created a moral consciousness in all of us. So even if you go to an isolated tribe somewhere that has no access to thousands of books or thousands of education, you will find that they have a moral law among themselves. Well, where did that moral law come from? That moral law comes from being created in the image of God. It's often called, by the way, the moral argument for the existence of God, but we're not talking about that uh, today. So again, you understand the problem of evil is, is a problem everybody's got to deal with. And it's not just for the skeptic. It's also and not just for the Christian. It's also for the skeptic. So what are the options? So here are the options that, that, that we can consider. One you could say, well, maybe there's no God, and that's the question of atheism, right? Maybe there's no God, and if there's no God, then we live in this closed system, and this system is just, uh, we're subject to uh, evolution and environment and, and, and all of that. Maybe there's no God. That's why evil exists. It's, it's just, a, it's just a, it's, it's, it's who we are. The other, the other uh, option is we could say maybe God is not good at all. Uh, not, not, is not all good and or all powerful. Um, you know, maybe there is a God, but he's not just the good God, you know, that we know him to be, and maybe he's not as powerful. And there's a theological term for this. It's called finite theism or finite Godism. Um, and we won't get into all those details, but it limits God. There's some things that God doesn't know. There's some things that God doesn't see. There's some things that God isn't aware of. Um, you know, he created everything, got it all going, but there's some things that happen that are outside of his control. And again, that's not the biblical view of God, but it is a view that people throw out there to kind of take God off the hook, so to speak. You know what I mean when I say that? Because here's, here's, the, here's the issue that we all, we all deal with. We as Christians know what the Bible teaches about God, we know that God is not a God who created evil because he can't. He's good. But yet evil exists, and we don't want God to get the blame for evil. So we try to find ways, theologians try to find ways to get God out of the picture so he's not taking the blame for evil in the world. Y'all looking at me like you're totally wiped out already, but does that make sense? We don't, want God to, we don't want God to get accused of all of this because we know that's not him. And so there are very, and we'll see a couple more in a minute. Uh, but here's the, here's the question. But why do humans even ask such questions? Animals don't. I mean, my dog doesn't ask me. I'm just going to go ahead and tell you, my dog is evil. 
You should see what he has done to my wooden floors in my house. He, he tore apart my sock after church Sunday. I mean, you know, my dog doesn't ask about evil. Is this sense of right and wrong, um, good and bad, only an accident of evolution? Or is it a reflection of our being made in the image of God? Why do we even ask right, wrong, and good, bad questions? That doesn't get a lot of discussion, but I will tell you that that is a very strong argument. To why, how do we know? You know, you know, you hear people say, well, we live in a world of relativism. You know, it's just whatever you decide is right, whatever you don't decide is right, it's up to you. You decide, you decide. Well, what if I decide I want to slap you? What's right for you is right for you. What's right for me is right for me. What if I want to walk up and slap you? What if I want to break into your house and steal your, uh, your flat screen TV? Is that right or wrong? What would you all say? You'd say it's wrong. But we live in a world that's relative. You know, everything's relative. Truth is relative. But you would say no. Even an atheist would say no, that's not true because, you know, we, there's, a, there's a certain moral uh, understanding of respect and love. And, and they'd say love trumps everything. How do we know about love? What, what, where's the standard for love? If there's a crooked line, how do we know it's straight? You see the point? This is really a question we all, everybody has to deal with. And everybody is. This, this is a question. But oftentimes the question of evil and, and God becomes a, a, a way for people to turn away from Christianity. It really does. It, it, it becomes a deterrent and a tool used to deter people uh, from Christianity. Oh, wait, let me go back. Don't, don't listen to that. Ignore that. So here's what I want to do just very quickly, um, because I want to give you some, some, some hope here, right? You say, Pastor, all you've done is raised questions. You haven't given us any hope. So I want you to look at your sheet. I didn't put these on the, 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 uh, the, the presentation. I want you to look at C where it says, what is the answer? So let's be honest. This is one of the most difficult issues we face given our belief in the God of the Bible who is perfect in goodness and all-powerful in his actions. It really is. It's one of the most difficult questions we will face because we know that God is good. We know his actions uh, and what he does is always purposeful. We know he's powerful. So there have been some arguments that have been uh, offered through the, the centuries. The, the first one is the free will argument. Augustine, uh, church father, uh, fourth and uh, fifth century, um, came up with this argument. He's the author of it. It's got various manifestations. And here's what he says. Here's, here's his, his, uh, his rationale for evil and how you justify that in the presence of God. That God made us as his image, uh, in his image as free creatures. And God desires that we love him freely. Coerced love is a contradiction. Free will gives us the ability to choose good or to choose evil. And the gift of free will explains in part why there is evil. Free beings made and make bad, evil choices. Now, hold on. I'll give you the blanks to fill in in just a moment. But Augustine said, well, here, it's easy. It's free will. So God creates perfect creatures. One of the, for example, when you think about the angels, uh, even though the angels are different than we are, they're beings. So God creates the angels. Well, what does he do with the angels? He gives them the ability to make choices. And a third of them make a choice to do what? To rebel against God. When they rebel against God and Lucifer rebels against God, their choices lead to the creation of evil in the world. So evil's not even a thing in itself. 
You can't touch it. It's the lack of thing. It's the lack of goodness that came about by bad choices. And so the argument would often be applied to human beings. God loves you, and one of the things that he loves about you is he loves you so much that he gives you the ability to either choose or to reject him. And because he gives you the ability to choose or reject him, and he won't coerce you to love him, you can make choices. We make choices. Those choices bring about evil consequences, i.e. the fall and everything that happened since. Therefore, God is not the author of evil. He's the author of free will. Fallen creatures are the author of evil. Now, listen, that is a great argument, and it makes it really neat, except there's some limitations to it. So hold on. I'll tell you those next week. But anyway, no, I'm a, we'll talk about those in a moment. So, but I want you to look at um, the, 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 uh, the issue of natural disasters, and I want you to think about the issue of moral disasters, okay? So you have evil, there's the line. Evil, which is natural, hurricanes, earthquakes, is the result of sin in general. Thus, natural evil and moral evil are interrelated. Did you get that? So I want you to, again, evil, which is natural, hurricanes, earthquakes, is the result of sin in general. Thus, natural evil and moral evil are interrelated. Just, just, this, this, this raises another little issue here. We have different kinds of evil, right? We have moral evil, and we, we commit moral evil. We see it all around us. There is natural evil, uh, which in a sense is that which happens when a lightning bolt hits a house and it burns it to the ground, or a hurricane comes, or an earthquake, or natural disasters, a tsunami. And then there is supernatural evil, which is the result of our enemy and his demon horde, right? So there's three types of evil. There's moral evil. We commit it. It's morality. There is natural evil, which happens because we live in a fallen world. And there is supernatural evil. Well, natural evil and moral evil are interrelated in this argument. And it would be basically the argument would be because of sin, we live in a broken world. And because we sin when we live in a broken world, evil is a reality in this broken world. Um, so natural disasters are the result of sin and its effect on the natural order. Okay? So that's how that uh, particular argument Augustine would raise would deal with those issues. Okay? Make sense? No? Yes? Okay. All right, I want you to look at number two, because this is where we're going to really get into trying to sew it up. But number two, the soul-building argument. Irenaeus, I know you got out of bed today and thought, hope pastor talks about Irenaeus. Uh, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Tertullian, Clement, Origen. I can go through them. J-I-T-C-O, I memorized it in seminary. But anyway, Irenaeus is an early church father, second and third century. And Irenaeus had an argument that went like this. God desires to develop our character into God-likeness. So God wants us to look more like him. We learn some things and develop spiritually through evil or suffering that we could not achieve in any other way. So there's some things that happen because of evil and, 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 and uh, 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 bad things that develop character in us. I mean, you've all been there, right? This bad thing happened to me. I never would want it to happen again, but I have grown 
in the middle of all of that, right? Have you ever had that happen? Of course you have. So here's a way to look at it. Would I know God loves me simply because he made me? Well, yes, but do I know God loves me more or less because of Christ dying for my sins? More. So I know God loves me, but because of the tragedy of the cross and the ugliness of the cross and all that happened at Easter, in that tragedy, it demonstrates to me even greater, uh, a greater way of God's love for me, okay? Now, that, that's an argument we'll talk about as we wrap it up here in just a second. But let me, let's go to number three. Then there's the theological, eschatological argument. And that is simply stated, though all things are not good, God causes all things to work for good to them who love him, Romans 8, 28 through 30. And in the end, God promises to make all things right and render perfect justice, okay? Now, let me give you just a couple of verses of Scripture. You don't write them down. You're not going to be able to. I'm going to go through this really quickly. But here's what I want you to understand. Is it possible, based on Scripture, that God could govern evil? He didn't create it, but that God allows it and governs it, and yet at the same time is grieved by it. Is it possible that God could see evil, not be the author of it, but allow it? Because everything that happens, by the way, is allowed by God. Would you admit that? It's not like God says, I didn't, oh, I didn't see that coming. He allows it for whatever reason. Is it possible that God can govern evil? In other words, by that I mean use evil ultimately for his purposes. Remember, his purposes are way beyond our purposes. But at the same time, as using evil for his purposes, grieve over what evil brings into the world that created. And the answer is emphatically yes. Let me give you just a few verses. Um, when God says in Romans chapter 8, all things work together, let me give you just some biblical passages um, that all things includes. All things includes the fall of sparrows, Matthew 10, 29, the rolling of dice, Proverbs 16, 33, the decision of kings, Proverbs 21, 1, the failing of sight, Exodus 4, 11, the sickness of children, 2 Samuel 12, 15, the loss or gain of money, 1 Samuel 2, 7, the suffering of the saints, 1 Peter 4, 19, the completion of travel plans, James 4, 15, the persecution of Christians, Hebrews 12. I told you, don't try to write them down. <laughs> the repentance of soul, 2 Timothy 2. The gift of faith, Philippians 1. The pursuit of holiness, Philippians 3. The growth of believers, Hebrews 6. The giving of life and the taking of death, 1 Samuel 2, 6. The crucifixion of his son. I mean, over and over and over again, God governs all things. And if you read your Bible, you will find that there are many things that are evil, that God didn't create. And he's not the author of, but he governs those things and he rules over those things. And for whatever purposes, he allows those things to occur. You see, I, I, the, the question of evil is a question that we're never going to walk away with with God and, and have this answer to it. It just makes it really neat because here's the reason. We're not God and we don't understand God's purposes. But if we believe that God governs all things, allows all things for a reason and a purpose, and rather whatever God uh, 
uh, wills to pass, he allows to come to pass. And we believe that somehow in all of that, God ultimately will have a purpose for those things that you and I may not see. And I want you to see uh, one of my favorite apologists, a guy named William Lane Craig, who a few years ago was talking about this very subject at Watermark Church here in Dallas with Todd Wagner on a Sunday morning. And I want you to kind of see this as, as we try to wrap this up.
that provides a hope and a reason for the suffering that can give you meaning. Whereas in most churches, your doctrine of rules is filled with criteria and unending pressure of those who say they are Christians. And if you think about that, that is really an incredible argument. Um, let me give you just a, a, a verse or two, and then we'll be done tonight. I was thinking about Psalm 139, verse 7 through 11. Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the othermost parts of the sea, even there your right hand shall hold me. Um, if I say the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for the darkness is as light to you. Uh, I think about the Apostle Paul when he was writing to the Romans in Romans chapter 3. Listen to this. This is a real powerful truth. Romans 3 verse 5, he says, But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? You think about what Paul is saying. He's saying even in our broken, fallen unrighteousness, even in the evil that we can create, the righteousness of God can be displayed. It, 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 only God who can govern evil and permit it and for whatever reason allow it, he can also grieve over it, but he can also use it ultimately for his glory and ultimately for our good. And so the, the problem of evil if you take God out of the equation, what are you left with? What are you left with? And that's why the Bible, I believe, says to us that God governs everything. So you say, Pastor, where do you, do you believe in the free will argument? Do you believe in the, you know, the soul building argument? Do you believe in the theological, eschatological argument? Yes, I believe in all those. Uh, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, one, Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, my ultimate view on this is I believe that God governs everything and oversees everything. And uh, I think any argument that you throw out there puts limitations and it, it takes away from who God is. Ultimately, rather than say it's just the mysteries of God, here's what I say. I say that God governs all things. But remember, if you're walking through darkness, it's okay not to have all the answers. It really is. And that's why I say when I started out as Christians, I think as Christians, we, 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 you, sometimes we just need to sit and suffer with people. I don't, I, there'll be a time to give them hope. There'll be a time to love on them. But sometimes we just need to sit and soak in the reality that we live in a broken, fallen world, but yet know that we have a God who is sovereign, who towers over all of that, and even in our weakness, still loves us the way we are. Um, you remember in the Gospels that the disciples were asking Jesus about a tower that fell and killed people? And remember they asked, they said, well, what did they do, you know, to cause that? And, and Jesus didn't even answer that, didn't even get into the question. He just said, unless you repent, you all likewise perish. Jesus was basically saying the result of that tragedy had nothing to do with those people what they did or didn't do. His point was, we live in a broken and a fallen world. We need to make sure that your heart belongs to God because it's, it's going to happen to all of us at some point. It's sooner or later 
we're all going to stand before him. So before we uh, leave and dismiss, I know it's time to go. Does anybody have any questions that Maurice can answer? Mosley, Pastor Maurice will will sew it all up for us. Uh, Turn it over to the Sanhedrin uh, tonight. Brother Jim can answer for us, any of these these pastor guys. But uh, yes, sir. That probably wasn't your first thought when you were diagnosed, either, was it? And so you're just looking at it from a year's perspective, and you're seeing that. Imagine if we were God and senseless things that happened, and we had the perspective that he sees it from beginning to end, as it all fits together with his great purpose. Um, You know, my thing is, don't let it drive you away from God. Let it drive you to God. Because it's a reality in our world, and if you don't have God, you have no recourse. You you have nothing to stand on except to say, I'm a blind actor in the midst of this world of of fate and tragedy. Um, Let's pray. Father, I pray tonight that our time would help us. I know, Lord, when we deal with subjects like this, uh, we always, we love the ABC of...